Welcome again. Uh, This morning I want to continue with the theme from uh, last time, which is to explore this uh, pivotal teaching. Really, the uh, could be said to be the core teaching coming out of the awakening, the enlightenment of the Buddha almost 2,600 years ago, that um, this particular teaching is right at the center of this massive influence of this one being, of course, in a tradition, but this one being who has influenced so many millions and perhaps billions of people over close to 2,600 years. And the teaching that we're looking at is the teaching that he said was the core teaching coming out of his awakening. And everything else is really elaboration of this teaching. This is the teaching of Paticca Samuppada, um, which is um, on one side of the handout, if you want the the, um, words in the Pali language, usually translated as dependent arising or often dependent origination. If you look, for example, on the website Dharma Seed, where all the talks from Wednesdays are, uh, have been recorded and are available to download, uh, I looked at, at the other talks, and they're all under the term dependent origination. So what this basically means, dependent origination, is the principle that everything is conditioned, that everything uh, has a cause, that nothing, as it were, is outside of causality, which will have some profound implications. It means that nothing is really independent. Everything is related in a web of causality. Our bodies, our minds, our thoughts, the trees, the newspaper, the news, all of this is in a web of interdependence, which from one point of view is obvious, but then the teaching points to the way that we actually often don't really live as if we were following that understanding. So the core principle uh, is sometimes expressed very, very generally as this. When this is present, that comes to be. From the arising of that, that arises. Very simple principle of what we might call conditionality or the interdependence of things. Then it also says, when this is absent, that does not come to be. On the cessation of this, that ceases. So, very general principle. And the particular model we look at here is an application of that general principle to what the Buddha thought was the most important issue we could possibly deal with in our lives. That is, how to be free and how, in particular, do we come to be unfree? Do we come to be caught in repetitive patterns of suffering. And so this teaching of dependent arising or dependent origination is a teaching uh, in more detail than we find in any other teaching of the roots of human suffering. And the implication will be that there are certain ways that we can practice, which are not fully spelled out in this teaching. This teaching is primarily an analysis of how repetitive suffering occurs. 
Next week, I'm going to particularly focus on ways of intervening given this model. In other words, how do we practice? But when we see this model, we can understand many of the forms of practice that we do, such as concentration, mindfulness, following ethical guidelines, developing wisdom, as fitting very well with this model as part of the series of ways to intervene or to respond or to stop the cycle of repetitive suffering. Now, again, right at the beginning, it's useful to make that distinction between pain and suffering. It's often a way that that, uh, many of us make that distinction. And it's the distinction which is found in that uh, teaching, which is one of my most beloved teachings, very similar to this teaching of dependent arising or dependent origination, the teaching of the two arrows, which I notice some people hear for the first time, so I must repeat it. <laughs> but it doesn't hurt. I, I've probably repeated it, I don't know, a few hundred times, and I still get, I still get inspired by it. So uh, hopefully you too. Uh, and see some new aspects. So, but it's it's a wonderful way, very precise and uh, quick and accessible way, to unpack this very core distinction between pain and suffering. The basic distinction is that pain is the presence of the unpleasant, and that's a given in human experience. There's always going to be certain amount of pain or certain amount of difficult, unpleasant, challenging situations. That's a given. Suffering is the reactivity, the uh, way that we are somewhat compulsively reacting to the unpleasant, and that's where things are workable. In other words, that we have hard experiences at times is a given, that we react mindlessly is not necessary. And in fact, we can have difficult circumstances and we can respond skillfully, wisely, and compassionately. And that's the heart of the practice. That's why we train, really. It's precisely for that eventuality. The teaching of the two arrows is that we are all, at times, as it were, shot by an arrow. It's the arrow of the unpleasant, physical pain, emotional pain, difficult life circumstances, injustice, and so forth. That at times happens to all of us. It's a given. And the non-practitioner, because of ignorance, confusion, habits, tends to shoot a second arrow after the first arrow has already entered oneself. It's as it were, I'm shot by the arrow of pain, I react, I have physical pain, I contract, I you know, complain, I blame myself, whatever. I have emotional pain, maybe from an interaction. I blame myself. I blame others. I tell stories about it for the next three days. That's all second arrow business, right? That's all shooting the second arrow. I have injustice occur, and uh, I, in, uh, because of what may be legitimately called injustice or unfairness, I then react negatively, I uh, blame, I judge, I may even, in worst case scenarios because of injustice, inflict pain and suffering on those who I believe have caused the injustice. And this is a lot of conflict and war is strictly second arrow business. 
And so this is the core distinction. What we learn in practice is even when the first arrow is there, we learn not to shoot the second arrow. The first arrow we can call pain, the presence of the unpleasant. The second arrow is the reactivity, shooting the second arrow, the reactivity, the that's what we call suffering. Again, this is somewhat technical use of the language because often in English we use pain and suffering interchangeably. And often we use suffering to mean the presence of the unpleasant, what I'm calling pain. So I'm using pain and suffering in more precise ways here. And I think it's helpful because that distinction is really a crucial one. It's right at the heart of, of this teaching. And so the uh, teaching of uh, dependent origination or dependent arising that we have on this chart, on this uh, chart that has the 12 different factors, is an elaboration of the teaching of the two arrows, really. It's basically saying, saying the same thing, which is that reactivity is the source of our suffering, where it's almost synonymous, but it unpacks it in a little more detail. Uh, just a little more on the, uh, on the term. Literally, paticca means having come on account of, and samupada means arising. So it means arising on account of something else, but very much like this principle of, uh, of conditionality. The uh, core teaching, and this is really, again, at the heart, which I mentioned last time, is basically this. Because we have ignorance, fundamental kind of spiritual ignorance of not deeply knowing who we are and the nature of things, because we are, as it were, in part, as if in a trance, in on automatic in certain ways, because of that ignorance, we have certain urges or tendencies or dispositions which lead us to be reactive. And that sets in, in, that keeps the cycle of suffering going. That's going to be the core teaching. And the way that we respond is that we find ways, as it were, to um, uh, stop the cycle, intervene in the cycle so that the cycle doesn't keep going. And that intervention can happen with the cultivation of wisdom, the cultivation of ethics, uh, mindfulness, uh, and so forth. And we'll, um, on the way today, my main purpose today is to go into more detail on these 12 factors so you have a better sense. But along the way, I'll speak about different ways of intervention. And then next time, go into a lot more depth on how we actually practice and intervene. But I'll give enough today so that we can, as we did last time, uh, take some of this home and look for uh, how to practice uh, in the next week. And there will be opportunities. Okay. Okay. So, last time I presented these 12 links as being able to be broken down into three main areas. And I should say that this model of the 12 links or the 12 conditions is interpreted in quite a number of ways. And I'll mention some of those. And it, some of the interpretations uh, vary with each other. But I'll, I'll give one that has the emphasis on how we practice. So it'll have a more of an experiential emphasis. Uh, so there, we, uh, But it's quite common to break down the cycle of 12 factors into three areas. And I like to do it in this way. The uh, one through five on the model are what we bring to experience. 
6 through 9 are what happens in experience, and 10 through 12 are the consequences of experience. And what the model is going to say is that when there is uh, ignorance and we have certain tendencies, that's what we, as it were, bring to experience. And on the basis of that, we will tend uh, in 6 through 9 to act in a certain way that will tend to lead to suffering. And 10 through 12 is a way of talking about what happens when we perpetuate those uh, actions, those tendencies, those habits that keep suffering going. So that's going to be pretty much the model. In some uh, Buddhist traditions, historically, these have sometimes been understood as past life, present life, and future life. It's been understood within the framework of rebirth, which is not how we tend to interpret it, Spirit Rock. That's, you know, uh, I think people have ambivalence about that teaching generally in the West. Some, it was very interesting, we had a, I think this is okay to say, we had a, <laughs> um, you know, some, some people are very adamantly against, and you know, there would be writers like Stephen Batchelor, some of you may know his work, who is adamantly says the concept of rebirth and reincarnation, they're Asian cultural models that should be, not be brought across the Pacific Ocean. You know. And uh, others say this is uh, inherently part of the tradition. You throw that out, you throw out the tradition. This also happens to be true. <laughs> so, and there was a wonderful debate between Stephen Batchelor and Robert Thurman on this in the pages of Tricycle, which should be available on the web. Very interesting to look at. And I, I remember at, um, at our, we had a, a, a Buddhist teacher's meeting 2011, I think it was, at, uh, on, the, on the East Coast. And we were doing an exercise. It was an interesting exercise. I won't go into that. But it involved people saying whether they uh, agreed with a particular statement, whether it described them. It was actually more of a community-building exercise. Some of you know where you, everyone stands on one side and those who are you know, women go to, one, go to the other side or those who are men or those who have you know, had difficulties with this go to the other side. So it's, it actually is a chance. It's actually an exercise that deepens a sense of vulnerability and community. And one of the questions asked uh, was... Uh, all of those who believe in rebirth and reincarnation go to the other side. It was very interesting. It was like about one-third of the people went to the other side. One-third of the people stayed on the side, indicating they didn't follow it. And then one-third were halfway. <laughs> it was really it was fascinating. I think that's kind of... Anyway, I just mentioned this, that this model is sometimes understood in some Buddhist traditions to be about what we bring from the past life in terms of ignorance and dispositions, which influences this life, and then our actions influence our future lives. It's sometimes interpreted in that way. I do not tend to uh, use that model myself. I intend to interpret what we bring to experience, what happens in experience, and the consequences of experience. Okay? And as I mentioned uh, Last time, one of, one of the ways we can also interpret this, which not, not, this is not the way it has typically been interpreted, but the way I like to interpret it, we can understand this model as a model uh, that we can see uh, in terms of an individual, 
an individual experience, individual life. We can also look at this in, in, as a model that helps us understand relationships or a group, and also a society, that we can use this to see what kind of factors are cultivating ignorance, what kind of factors, how do we intervene with a, a pervasive system in which people have certain tendencies because of ignorance which may come from these sources, inner sources, outer sources, and so forth. So, you know, uh, propaganda, education, advertising, etc. So I think that's, I like to look at that. And you might even think as you look at this, how would this be applied individually, relationally, and collectively? I'm going to interpret it individually just to keep it simple. But you, you might want to go off like that. And I've some, maybe next time, I'll, in terms of intervention, one can look at it like that. For example, you could very much use this model as a way to guide someone to work with tendencies towards addiction, for example. And you could see what are the inner factors that make addiction possible, what are the social factors, what are the family factors. And we could really use this to help us with that kind of analysis, just to give that example. So... The essence of the teaching is that we are continually repeating our ignorance, our tendencies, our habits, our reactivity. It had that, uh, the, that suffering is continually recreated, is continually repeated, that the patterns are continually repeated. And what that means is that we can continually intervene with mindfulness and break the cycle. So there's both the bad news that basically everything we are... Basically, the bad news and the good news is that every moment matters. With every moment, we are either cultivating awareness or we are keeping an old habit going that will tend to perpetuate suffering. So it's both sobering and it's also very optimistic. (laughs) you get that? It's very interesting. Okay, so now on the, uh, on the factors. I'll go through them uh, one by one. And I brought in last time, there's a Tibetan uh, tanka, which you can come up and look at afterwards. It's too, I, if, I had, if, I, if I was doing my presentation with PowerPoint, <laughs> which I haven't done yet, would you like PowerPoint here? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe occasionally, or if there's a real good reason, but no, okay. Okay, we, we will accept uh, democratic uh, consensus. <laughs> so there's, um, but anyway, in the Tibetan model, which you can't see because we don't have PowerPoint. <laughs> oh, just joking. Um, there, this is, a, this is like a, a very detailed model, actually, of... Um, the 12 links, which goes go around the end, this is called the Wheel of Life, held by this basically friendly demon <laughs> who holds all of life. And it has, it's a quite a complex uh, model. It has the three roots of um, suffering, greed, hatred, and delusion in the middle, and the different spheres of existence in the next outer circle, and then the outer circle is the 12 links. And I'll mention... Um, as we go through what, what, how in this pictorial image the links are 
in a sense, personified the different, uh, the 12 different links. So the first is ignorance. And again, ignorance is taken as the root of suffering. And it's, it's uh, this, in the uh, tradition, when one looks to the roots of suffering, typically ignorance is the answer. And again, from a broad kind of cross-cultural point of view, it's important to see that the fact that ignorance is the root cause of suffering, suffering is actually an optimistic view. It's basically saying there is ignorance and there can be knowledge and wisdom. Right? It is not saying you are completely cursed and you are suffering because you are bad or evil or have original sin or whatever. You know, this is actually an optimistic view and it's actually, again, there are a number of views historically around the world where the view was that some people are just bad or evil. And that's the root of the problem. Right? This is a different view, which is similar to that which you find with the ancient Greeks, with Plato or Aristotle. It was also the view that ignorance is the problem. So it's, they're parallels in different, different uh, traditions. So ignorance is the root problem. That means, ultimately, that there's no such thing there's really not going to be any such thing as evil. Which is, I mean, again, not go into that so much now, but the fact that ignorance is the root cause is, is significant in that way. That even it would say someone like Hitler followed this pattern that, that led him to the actions that he took. You know, again, that would be the claim here. You know? And there, there are a lot of examples in the tradition of people who did very, very bad things some of you know the story of Angulimala, uh, who was a serial murderer and later became a monk. And a very interesting model of what do you do with people who have done bad things. In the tradition, there are a lot of stories of people who have done very bad things who basically redeem themselves and work through the roots of the bad things and came out actually as awakened beings. It's quite powerful. And Gulimala was one like this. He was a mass murderer, and he was, uh, and he was uh, at a certain point, he decided to become, it's a long story, which maybe I can tell another time. It's quite a beautiful story. And he became a monk, and he was able to come to awakening. He still had some bad karma because of the, what he had done. So sometimes he'd be, there'd be people who would throw stones at him and so forth. You know? I'm curious about how that works with yeah, question about, you know, that will take us into some other uh, directions. You know, there's certainly accountability, but the basic, you know, so, but in, in that model, he did not go to prison, you know. But he, it was probably, probably, again, we'd have to look at the text. I would sense more of an inner accountability. Um, as far as I know, he did not do penance and so forth, but he... Um, yeah, that's that's a little more complex. So I'll, maybe I'll just keep it at that. That's a good question, given that that model. So the ignorance we're talking about here is a spiritual ignorance. It's not an ignorance of facts or an ignorance uh, about information. Uh, in the in the tradition, the ignorance is often unpacked as ignorance about the four noble truths. In other words, we are confused about the roots of suffering. We don't. We tend to think that happiness will come from grasping onto things, grasping onto people, 
and so forth, we tend to think of happiness as being external. If I get this experience, I get this thing, then I will be happy, rather than as happiness being more of a deep inner quality. And so there's a core ignorance about the roots of happiness and the roots of suffering, which tend to make us go outward for happiness and also to blame outwardly and often inwardly for, um, for uh, when there's suffering. And so there's a root, there's a root ignorance uh, in that way. And the teaching here points to the greater role that inner factors play both in happiness and in suffering that the roots of happiness and suffering are much, there's much more, uh, as it were, room for taking inner responsibility and not having it be something purely external. Now, in the model, it said that one factor conditions the next factor. And in fact, that is actually uh, a simplification. You know, that if we actually look to this model and wanted to see how things actually occur, it's somewhat of a simplification to say that one conditions two, two conditions three, three conditions four, and so forth. That's true, and that's how the model is understood. Probably in reality, it's much more of a, a matrix where everything is influencing everything else, right? Where my ignorance is, in, is going across and influencing uh, number nine and number eight and number ten. Uh, that is really much more of an interdependent matrix. And some people have interpreted dependent arising more in that way, but for simplicity's sake, we understand it more like a cycle where one conditions two and two conditions three. In some instances, that's easier to understand than others. In the instance of one conditioning two, it can make sense. Given that I have ignorance, which may be quite unconscious, I will have certain dispositions, tendencies, urges. If I have a deep underlying belief that my happiness comes from getting things, from grasping onto things or experiences, I will definitely have certain urges, certain wishes, certain tendencies, certain dispositions. So the second um, second factor, uh, which here is translated as conditioning activity or dispositions, also sometimes translated as... <coughs> Uh, formations or volitional formations or karmic formations. It's, under, it's linked with sort of the urges or intentions that we have, some of them unconscious, which come out of, uh, if, we, if we have ignorance, those will tend to be not skillful, right? Generally in our lives, a lot of our tendencies may be quite healthy and helpful. If I have a, I may have tendencies to be helpful, to be kind, to want to help people, to want to be of use and so forth. What we're talking about in this model is what happens when there's ignorance. And so this isn't a global model of all conditioning or all of the factors. It's really saying when there is ignorance, there will tend to be conditioning in which we have urges or wishes, which are basically like bad habits. (laughs) When there's basically... Given ignorance, that ignorance will condition bad habits. That's pretty obvious, right? <laughs> that's pretty That's pretty clear. And so, in a sense, we would say the ignorance uh, forms us. And those tendencies can be conscious or unconscious or half-conscious. And so it might be 
a tendency, you know, it might be a tendency to get really angry when I don't get what I want, right? That could be, that would come under this factor of conditioning. Uh, or to, it might be a tendency to, uh, when something difficult happens in my life, to tell negative stories about myself, right? To go right to the negative stories. That might be, that might be a tendency. So basically, these are deeply entrenched uh, predispositions which come out of ignorance. And they connect up with, with uh, what we sometimes call in Western psychology the unconscious. You can see that that's, uh, a lot of these tendencies are beneath the level of consciousness, right? And we only discover them as we look more deeply with mindfulness or, or psychological work. So I mentioned last time that ignorance is understood in the Tibetan diagram as a blind old woman being led by a boy. Conditioning is understood as a potter molding clay uh, on a wheel. So it's the formation aspect that these are being, that ignorance is forming habits and it's understood as the activity of a potter the conditioning will tend to make our consciousness a certain way. And consciousness here, the third, is understood as the knowing quality, the knowing of an object. Uh, Consciousness is always, in the Buddhist tradition, understood as the knowing of something. It's the awareness of something. And the, the... image in the Tibetan uh, diagram is that, uh, that consciousness is like a monkey in a tree. Okay. You've got consciousness there, you've got a monkey in a tree. So, uh, so here the idea is that when we are uh, with our consciousness, if we have these habits and these tendencies and disposition, it's going to influence our consciousness. Our consciousness is going to be selective at times, right? If I have a tendency to be angry, I'm going to notice some things and not notice others. I'll be conscious of some things and not conscious of others. Um, And yet, uh, the positive aspect here, it's actually the factor of consciousness which is going to be linked with mindfulness and make it possible for us to actually come to knowing. So we have the seeds in the fact of consciousness of the possibility of seeing through the whole cycle. So, but that consciousness will, to the extent that it's conditioned by ignorance, will again uh, be very selective, go in certain directions, see certain things, not see other things. And then uh, consciousness is taken to condition what's called name and form. And again, these are all sort of what we bring to experience. We bring our underlying ignorance as well as what we know. We bring our habits. We bring the human capacity for consciousness. And name and form, her nama rupa, is another word for the basic capacity of mind and body. And uh, this is understood as the capacity of the mind to... uh, uh, contact the world to see. This is really uh, just another name for basic human capacities of mind and body to have there be stimulation, to be there to be feeling, to have 
attention to perceive things and so forth. So again, fairly, uh, in some sense, uh, you know, in the general sense, this capacity is neutral. When there is ignorance, again, uh, the name, uh, the way we use our attention or our mind and body will be influenced by the ignorance. It'll tend to be uh, of a certain kind. You know, that if we, if we have uh, a lot of reactivity, tension, anxiety, that will affect our mind and body very clearly. So the fifth, and this is the last of, the, of what we bring to experience, that's more neutral. Could you tell what the um, image, image Oh, is? the image. The image is that of a man ferried across the ocean, which is uh, sort of the idea of a human being going across the ocean of life. That, that this is done with name, name and form. Okay. Are you enjoying, enjoying the details of this? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Because uh, we're going to get to the real crux of it in a moment. This is the background. Okay. This is like what we bring to experience. And the last is a little more uh, straightforward. It's the six senses. And in the Tibetan model, this is, the em- is seen as an empty house which has like all the windows. It's just the human capacity to have things come through the windows, to have light come through the windows is the model of the senses. It's like we're just there and experience occurs with the senses. And again, in Buddhist tradition, we have the five usual senses of you know, taste and smell and touch and hearing and um, seeing. And then it all, there was also added the uh, what's called the sixth sense, which is the the mind, or what we think, you know, what we experience at the level of consciousness in the mind is taken to be the sixth sense. And again, there will be some conditioning if there is ignorance that the you know our six our senses will be influenced by what's come before. We will tend again to notice some things and not others will tend to be preoccupied, and so forth. Okay, so we have, the, um, uh, we have what we bring to experience is set. Some of it's unconscious, some of it's the normal human uh, capacity to uh, have the senses working, mind and body working, consciousness working, and so forth. All of it influenced when we have, as it were, bad habits. Okay. Now we come in the next four factors. This is, this is where... Uh, is a main place for intervention and practice. Now, we can intervene by study, by listening, uh, by exploring a subject like dependent origination. We can actually get at the ignorance, right? That right now in the talk, we're, we're strengthening what we might say is the wisdom factor. And so that is actually a way to intervene with ignorance and disposition. Do you hear this talk and next time you feel an urge, you might say, do I want to do that? Is that wise? Right? What about dependent arising? <laughs> right. Or uh, you're, you know, at dinner, you go out to dinner tonight, and you're, you say, should I have a second helping of that wonderful apple pie? And said, in the light of dependent arising, what would this be doing? And you reflect, and you may or may not have the peace. That's another matter. But the fact that you're intervening, reflecting, 
is significant. So, but here we're getting to the main area where we intervene with mindfulness, uh, with noticing what's happening in the present moment. Okay? So there are four factors here. The first is uh, stimulation or, uh, or contact uh, in the uh, number six. And um, the image here is of a man and woman holding hands. Romantic Tibetan image for um, contact. <laughs> okay, there's contact there, and the contact uh, can be, is basically uh, the contact of our senses with an object, and the object can be internal or external. So contact could mean uh, seeing, you know, seeing uh, this striker. It could be hearing the bell. It could also be noticing a thought or noticing an inner body sensation. So contact could be anything which we experience, okay? And uh, obviously this is happening all the time. This is sort of the meeting of the senses with experience, with the world. And again, when there is ignorance, our senses may be somewhat distorted, right? That the, 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 all of this will tend to condition the senses. Again, strictly speaking, the senses are neutral, but they will be influenced by ignorance and tendencies and dispositions. We, will, uh, we may not be able to uh, see accurately if we're really angry, right? Or if we have some uh, preoccupation, or if we're just uh, consumed in thought, we won't be able to watch the sunset. You know, our senses will actually be influenced because there'll be all sorts of thoughts intervening and we actually won't be able to notice, uh, let's say, the sunset or the tree um, with clarity and accuracy. Okay? And so, now here's where it gets interesting. Uh, seven through nine, I said last time that a scholar and teacher, Western teacher of Tibetan Buddhism, Reginald Ray, who has a few books in the bookstore, has written some very interesting books. He said that all of spiritual practice basically falls between seven and nine between feeling tone and grasping. And what that's saying is that this is the crucial place to watch and intervene. This may be the most, in in terms of our mindfulness practice, this is the most crucial place to intervene if we want to work against our habits, our bad habits, or to look into what's happening. So feeling tone is... um, uh, Translation of Vedna, sometimes translated misleadingly, I think, as feeling. So feeling tone is a sense of something being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral in the moment. And it's taken that every experience is either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Right now, if you look to your contact with the chair or the cushion, it will, it will, it will be somewhere on the spectrum uh, from agony to ecstasy. <laughs> Probably in the middle. <laughs> Somewhere, you know, most of our experience is in the middle range, where it's maybe a little pleasant, a little unpleasant, and sometimes things get very unpleasant, and sometimes things get very pleasant. Right? That's human life can be summarized in that way. <laughs> okay. uh, and so the the image in the Tibetan uh, painting is that uh, of an arrow entering someone's eye. I think if we would probably do the image, we'd have a little bit 
different image right now, right? If, we were, if this was a culturally friendly, <laughs> but this worked for the Tibetans, right? So it's, and it's kind of dramatic, right? This is a feeling tone, an arrow entering someone's eye. And actually they have a nice uh, metaphor for feeling tone in Tibetan tradition. They say that feeling tone is called the eater because it's that which tastes every experience and finds it either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Interesting, right? The eater. You know? And uh, again, it can be very influenced by all the, all the previous factors so that our sense of whether something's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral can be very much uh, influenced by uh, past conditioning, by past tendencies. You know, if I'm rebellious against my mother telling me what to eat, I will find broccoli to have a horrible taste, right? (laughs) And the interesting thing about feeling tone is that it actually uh, has a strong subjective aspect to it, right? Feeling the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral is not universal among human beings. You know? And even the same thing. I've told my stories in the past about being in a house where I was in a group house and one of the people in the house was a woman originally from Iraq. And she would often on Saturday nights cook baklava. And we got, had all-you-can-eat baklava. And I would, uh, I, I would have first piece of baklava, feeling tone, very, very pleasant. Second piece of baklava, pretty pleasant still. Third piece of baklava, getting towards the neutral zone. Fourth piece of baklava, uh, getting into the unpleasant, right? Very interesting, right? Or it's just this fascinating, fascinating aspect. Or, you know, and feeling tone is just this very remarkable thing that uh, a story I heard from Guy Armstrong, which I've told here before, is that uh, there was once a 7-Eleven, just a few years ago, a 7-Eleven in the Los Angeles area, where the owner found that there was a lot of uh, drug dealing in the parking lot at night. And what should I do with this? Should I call the police? And I don't know whether he was a student of feeling tone, but he um, uh, put up a loudspeaker, and on the loudspeaker they played Montavani, which is like, <laughs> which is like elevator music, right? <laughs> and the, you know, the drug dealing soon very, very quickly went away. Of course, it went somewhere else, so where they didn't know about Montavani. You know? And some people love Montavani. Guy said that his mother loved it, but the drug dealers did not, apparently, and the, the customers apparently did not. So this is, feel, this is the power of feeling tone. Very subjective, very interesting, right? And it's happening, and the, uh, you know, we, can, we can look at it, and what follows when there is a pleasant feeling tone, if we're conditioned by ignorance and habits, is we will have a very strong tendency to go to number eight, which is craving. And in the image, the Tibetan image is of a woman serving a man a drink. Okay, that we um, that because of the pleasant experience, we will have very strong wanting. You know, oh, this is really good. I want that. You know, it could be. Oh, that strawberry is great. I want a second. Or, or that baklava is really, really good. I want another piece. You know, and that craving obviously can get us in trouble, as with my baklava story. And, uh, and so we follow this, 
um, that the uh, uh, the feeling tone of pleasant will condition wanting what's called craving here. And what's not fully brought out in this model is that also the unpleasant will condition uh, aversion, not wanting something. I think that's understood, but it's helpful to see that we can go in those two ways. We, we sometimes say we can be reactive in two ways. And here we're starting to be reactive in the sense that we can be reactive in pushing something away, like the two-arrow model, or we can be reactive in trying to grab hold, that those are the two ways that we are reactive. And those are taken to be two roots, ultimately, of suffering, kind of a compulsive reaction in which we grab hold or a compulsive reaction in which we push away. And that, that is what uh, happens with the, um, with the eighth. And so what's important to see here is that um, the problem is going to be twofold. It's going to be that with wanting or desire, it's going to be that um, we will have a strong tendency to act on it, to grasp. That's one problem. And the other problem is that being conditioned by ignorance, we will think that that um, meeting my desire will in some sense make me happy. In other words, the problem here with desire is not desire per se. If there was no ignorance, desire wouldn't be the same kind of problem. If, there were, if we didn't have the bad habits, desire wouldn't be the same problem. And obviously, we work with desire as well as not wanting all the time in our lives. And we can act on it with, more, with wisdom and skill. Here, what's being said is that when there's ignorance, when there are those habits, when there's those dispositions, that will condition us to think, like, I have to have it, or this will really make my day. You know, or what's that McDonald's advertisement? How's that go? You deserve a break, a break right? It's kind of like, okay, go to McDonald's, you deserve a break. This will really do it, at least for a while. <laughs> and advertising plays on this, right? Advertising plays on this. So it's the crucial aspect here is the factor of ignorance in the sense that we think this is somehow going to do it for us. Now, also crucial is that there's a place for intervention here, as we know, that often we can intervene between eight and nine. Some of the intervention can come right when we notice feeling tone. When we notice feeling tone, it's as it were, particularly some, a strong pleasant or a strong unpleasant, it's like it, it should be a mindfulness bell, right? The mindfulness bell goes on and we can say, let me look at this because to the extent that I have conditioning coming out of ignorance, I'm going to be, as it were, uh, taken for a ride by this wanting or this, this not wanting. So we can intervene by noticing feeling tone. We can intervene by noticing wanting or not wanting and, and actually not following the path from eight to nine. When there's ignorance, lack of mindfulness, the craving will tend to go to grasping. The not wanting will tend to go to pushing away. Again, at the level, it could be at the level of a body sensation, an emotion that occurs, we can say, I shouldn't have that thought. Or it can be at an interpersonal level, someone says something nasty and I instantly say something nasty back. That's going from eight to nine. 
instantly, right? Or in, a, in different kinds of conflict, the same thing. So number nine is grasping. Uh, this, and the image is of a man grasping fruit and storing it in a big basket. Okay? And we can grasp after all sorts of things, after ideas, after sense experiences, after views, uh, after wanting something for myself. And again, uh, it can be grasping or it can be pushing away. And this is where we act, and this is taken to be once we've acted, in a sense, we then move to 10, which is that, in a sense, once we've acted, we've uh, kept the habit energy in existence. We've, as it were, recreated the tendency. And that's where the 10th comes in, which is called becoming, sometimes translated as existence, which is really the continual, uh, the continuation of a particular habit. It continues its being. It comes, into, it comes into existence. And there the image is that of a husband and wife in the Tibetan model. Um, and so if I act reactively, let's say, and interpersonally I act with nasty language, it's like I am perpetuating my habit of doing that when there is a difficult interpersonal situation. Or if I, let's say, eat food when I have anxiety and I act on that, I am strengthening that habit. So basically, every time we act, we are continuing a habit energy, right? That's why it really makes sense to look carefully at our actions, that every moment matters. And so uh, all through, once we act, the identity, my identity gets strengthened. I have just strengthened myself as I am someone who acts this way in these circumstances. And then I'll just go through uh, 11 and 12 quickly. Uh, it's taken that um, this is, can be interpreted in different ways. Basically, this is saying that once we act, we recre- uh, a habit is recreated, comes further into being, and in due time, it will lead to suffering. That's what 10 through 12 will basic, are basically saying. And it's unpacked by becoming, which I just mentioned, and then there's the model of birth. Uh, the image in Tibetan model is that of a birth of a baby. It's really the recreating of our tendencies, the recreating of our habits, the recreating of certain process. You know, so I, as it were, give birth again to myself as following a habit. I give birth to myself as, again, as I in difficult circumstances, I'm an angry person, and so forth. Um, from um, <clears throat> the Cambodian teacher, Mahagosananda, said something like this, the thought manifests as the word, the word manifests as the deed, the deed develops into the habit, the habit hardens into the character, the character gives birth to the destiny. So watch your thoughts with care, and let them spring with love born out of respect for all beings. It's quite powerful, isn't it? Maybe I'll end with that at the end of the, end of the uh, talk in a moment. So it's that the thought manifests as the word, the word manifests as the deed. The de- deed develops into the habit. The habit hardens into character. 
The character gives birth to the destiny, so watch your thoughts with care and let them spring from love born out of respect for all beings. So it's really showing how as we act, as we think, something is born. We develop character. And the good news is that this all can be transformed. No matter what we've done in the past, we have the possibility of acting in the present moment and acting with love and care. That's the great news, right? That we can always uh, come back. It's beautiful. It has a lot of uh, grace there. And so birth occurs. We recreate ourselves. And then it's said that when we've done that, when we recreate our habits, conditioned by all the previous factors, especially ignorance and tendencies, we will tend to uh, lead to suffering. And the, the term here for 12, and the image is that in the Tibetan is that of death and burial, uh, is that it's actually, um, it's a long term given in the text. It's aging, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. And it, we can summarize that as suffering, or it's summarized also as aging and death. But the basic idea is that all of these tendencies, when there is ignorance, will lead to suffering, that, that they will uh, reach fruit as, as suffering. Another way of saying it is that when we have these habits, they are doomed to lead to, um, lead to suffering. What was the image of 11? 11 was the birth of a baby. Sorry, yeah birth of a baby. And so again, I'll, I'll finish with this, but what the, the point here is that this has a cyclical nature. In fact, the very term for samsara, which is the term used for the condition of living driven by ignorance, it has the image of a circle. And there, it has this sense of a cycle. And so we intervene, and where we could look in our practice, we could intervene by watching our tendencies by cultivating more wisdom. Uh, We can intervene especially at one and two and then at six through nine. Those are the primary places we intervene. But probably if we really pay attention, we could intervene almost anywhere. But those are the two primary places we intervene. And we can uh, especially, the key one to watch is how when uh, when we have a strongly pleasant or strongly unpleasant experience, what do we do? Do we go from craving to grasping? Do we go from aversion to pushing away? Or is there some other alternative? So I'll finish again with this uh, beautiful passage from uh, Mahagosananda, who is a very mischievous uh, Cambodian monk who I met quite a few times in, uh, in Asia. And he was very, very playful and... Um, often very silly, but very deep. It's a good combination. <laughs> so, the thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into the habit. The habit hardens into the character. The character gives birth to the destiny. So watch your thoughts with care and let them spring from love born out of respect for all beings. Let's just sit for a moment and we can talk with each other for a bit.
So I'm glad I got through them. There were 12, you know, as a, as a, as someone giving a talk, having 12 things to get through is a challenge, right? So I'm, thank you for your patience with this. And uh, next time we can focus more on intervention. I think have a, quite a bit more discussion. We have a little bit of time now. If there are any questions uh, to clarify anything about it or know how to respond, anything you'd like to ask, please. I just wanted to say that I really appreciate all this teaching because it really, it just sheds a whole different light on all the other things we've talked about all along. Yeah. It just puts it into perspective somehow for me. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so so, so it's an appreciation for how going in depth with this teaching can really connect with a lot of what we have done at other times with different teachings, different practices. Yeah, it's, um, it's nice to go into depth because we see that it's actually very accessible. It's not based on beliefs we have to adopt. It's really very experiential. Yeah, thank you. Please. Um, sorry, but so if you have a neutral feeling tone, yeah. you don't get caught in the wheel of suffering or how to... Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. So with, I, I didn't go into as much detail um, on feeling tone. It's, it's actually, uh, I think, I think, uh, I think I once here gave a, like a whole 40 minute talk just on feeling tone. So it would be on Dharma Seed to go into more depth. But yeah, it's a great question. Um, the, the understanding is that when we're not mindful of a neutral feeling tone, we will tend to space out. Okay. Yeah. That we go into delusion. That when we, yeah, when we, we can go, the tendency, when we're not mindful with feeling tone, we go either into greed, hatred, or delusion, or greed, uh, aversion, or delusion. Yeah, thank you. Um, Please, Nath. It worries me a little bit, um, the two through four and five, where our past ignorance has affected our ability to perceive. Yeah. Um, and, and I wonder what are the conditions that allow us to be open-minded so that we can overcome those built-in yeah. habits and ways of perception and inability, blindness to, to wisdom. Right. That's a wonderful question about... Um, this model suggests that to the extent that we are conditioned by ignorance of, say, bad habits different kinds of conditioning coming out of ignorance, different kinds of urges, dispositions, that it will affect the uh, functioning of our basic human capacities to be aware, to uh, have our mind and body work in a certain way, and to uh, perceive and so forth. And so um, it it is sobering. Yeah, it can be sobering. So uh, the... Prognosis is is uh, optimistic. Yeah, something like like Mark was saying. Um, there's some problems. We got some work to do, but it's workable. That's the the short answer. But basically, um, the way I've unpacked this, remember, this is this is a model of what happens when there is ignorance. Now, this isn't the full story. We could have a parallel map of our good habits. We could have a parallel account of the extent to which we don't have ignorance. 
You know, and I think all of us probably are born with certain upbringing, which brings about more positive qualities, positive habits, right? Um, like I said, could be the habit to be kind. You know, I think, or it could be, you know, scientists say the normal functioning of our limbic system in the brain is to be compassionate and empathic. Now, we learn in ways that tend to uh, often have us not be empathic or compassionate, that our normal function of our limbic system is not always happening. But we have certain tendencies, uh, and we could have a map here. You could, you know, you could have a map of your bad habits, my bad habits, my good habits, right? And you could outline those in terms of all the categories. You know, you could hear, hear you know, here under number two are my good habits. Here are some of the ways that I was brought up that, or that I came into the start of practice and had some very positive tendencies. And that here are the ways that I sometimes have my consciousness working very well, not influenced by ignorance. Here are the ways that I perceive, can perceive people accurately. Here are the ways that it's distorted. And so when we look carefully, we'll see that it's going to be both. You know, and the again, the uh, optimism, which comes both out of practice and out of brain research, from brain research we would say there's neuroplasticity, which means that even if you have a lot of bad brain habits, <laughs> uh, they can be changed, right, uh, with the right training. And so that's the, that's the good news. So it's an inter- interesting question, isn't it? But yeah, it's, and it's very interesting to study when I'm angry, how does it affect my perception? How does my mind work? How does my, uh, what do I notice? Do I not notice? You know, we, we know very well when we are looking for, uh, when we're angry or really having someone else as an enemy or some country as an enemy, we only notice the bad, right? It definitely affects our perception. Um, please, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just really brings to mind how this aligns so well with 12-step work. Yeah. Including the categorization of, you know, habits and character and, yeah. and so forth. Yeah. And in that model, there would be some opening to grace or a con- some, some, some faith in some higher power, whatever that is. Yeah. And that's kind of like something outside of our own our own conditioning. Yeah, yeah. I think um, th- this can make sense of a lot of different kinds of training. And again, there, there are parallels between the 12-step program and the practice we do here. And you, I think you know Kevin Griffin offers a class once a month. And we could say that um, as we practice, we have to have faith in, you know, sort of a power of mind and heart that's beyond our our conditioned tendencies, which I think that would have some way to link with that, right? You know, which which ultimately is the faith in the awakened mind, which is quite wonderful and, and deep. Yeah. Um, yeah. So thank you. It's a good. It's a great point. Is there anything else? Was there someone back here with a? Yeah, please. Maybe this would be the last one. I don't have a question. I have a comment, which is yeah. I think it's really hard to be skillful, and it's really hard. Overcome our tendencies. Yeah. It's really hard to do the practice in real life. Yeah. And um, and I think it's easy for to be unskillful and be habitual and be less happy. And yeah. It's just it's a 
It's hard to be happy. Yeah. <laughs> so beautiful, beautiful comment about how this, we could say that uh, it's a simple conceptual model and in practice it's quite hard. That and, and you were saying that in practice it's hard to be happy, it's hard to uh, go against one's habits. And this is where we could, you know, maybe we can look more next time. What, um, what Next time I want to focus on how do we intervene? What's going to help? And we can think of it in multiple ways. We can think of it, how do, what kind of understanding do I need that helps me to intervene? What kind of internal supports do I need or internal practices? You know, this is where we say, well, it's going to help your mindfulness a lot if you practice mindfulness uh, during, you know, half hour a day. That's going to help. What kind of external supports are going to be necessary to break the cycle? Because it is hard. And we need, I think we need a lot of internal and external supports. To do it entirely on one's own is quite hard, you know, but there we can have uh, friends, community, teachings, recordings, uh, all sorts of ways. And I, I mentioned how uh, at the end of the four-week retreat that I did in March, I was very focused on how to bring my daily life practice a few notches closer to my retreat experience. And I, had four, I wrote four pages of self-guidance and encouragement. <laughs> You know, which is very much related to your question because it is hard and there's a lot of conditioning and, you know, there are aspects of our culture which are, seem quite interested in having us stay somewhat asleep and keep shopping. <laughs> okay, um, which, again, uh, not... Sh- middle, middle, middle way approach to shopping, quite wonderful. But... Uh, but but there are cultural, you know, there are cultural factors out there. So I think very good question. Maybe that can be a segue to next next time. So um, my suggestion for next time is use the model. Bring the bring the handout next time, please. That'd be great. We'll focus on intervention in more detail, much like we're suggesting here. Inner supports, outer supports, what we can do personally, and we'll have. Uh, um, I'll have my talk will be shorter next time because I don't have to get through 12, 12 factors. And we'll, uh, we'll look especially at how to practice, how to intervene, given what we've done in this model. And so uh, may our practice be of uh, benefit to ourselves, to all of those with whom we're in contact, and ultimately to all beings. Maybe also just as we as we finish, take a moment just to think, how might I like to explore this further in the next week? And if you want to set an intention. So thank you kindly. And if anyone wants to look at the Tibetan diagram, I have it up here if you want to come up and take a look.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.